But a lot of the things in books, conferences that are being marketed specifically to women are talking about God in a way that's not biblically accurate, or at least it's just a halfway story. It's not the whole gospel, the whole story of who God is. And so we don't know him fully. And so we don't experience him fully. Welcome to the 32nd Book Club podcast. This is a place for people who want to read more books and be in a book club, but don't have time to really do either. I take care of that for you. Social distance, of course. And Felicia Masonheimer is in the 32nd Book Club this week talking about her book, Stop Calling Me Beautiful. Finding soul deep strength in a skin deep world. And Felicia, you kind of talk about your heart behind doing all of this. And I think there's a lot of women because there's a lot of more so than men. There's not a lot of men conferences. There's a few, uh, but there's a lot of women's conferences. And, and you kind of felt like I think my wife's kind of said the same thing to me when she's gone to a few of them. They all not all of them, but a lot of them kind of have this same idea where you kind of left wanting a little more. And that's kind of why you wrote this book, right? Yes, absolutely. I was going to these conferences and even reading a lot of Christian lifestyle books and coming away with essentially the same message. I am a beautiful daughter of God and I'm loved by God. But when it comes to how that worked out in my Christian life, how I behaved in the world, how I was to think, how I was to relate to other people, how I was to have victory over sin in my own life, there really wasn't a lot of specific information. Um, and it tended to kind of remove me from the Bible and the word of God itself. So there wasn't practical application and there wasn't a lot of grounding in scripture and left me kind of wondering, well, what does it even mean to be a Christian as a woman in this world? And so there's so many great things in this book, including at the beginning, as you're kind of talking about this journey that you went on, I think you, you asked a question that a lot of us ask, even as we go to things like these these conferences and you know listen to KTIS and hear the worship songs and worship along uh, Felicia why don't we experience God I think the big reason is we don't know how to know him you can't experience someone you don't know right you have to spend time with them you have to get to know them in order to truly experience them in a way that's fulfilling to both of you. And the same goes for God who designed human relationships. We can't experience him if we don't know him and we know him through the word of God. But a lot of the things in books, conferences that are being marketed specifically to women are talking about God in a way that's not biblically accurate, or at least it's just a halfway story. It's not the whole gospel, the whole story of who God is. And so we don't know him fully. And so we don't experience him fully. We end up with kind of a halfway salvation or a halfway Christian life that doesn't feel fulfilling because it's not, it's not, it's not what God intended. And, and I think this is kind of interesting. I, it's, it's such a trendy thing now, you know, the Instagram Bible and you talk about this, there's all chapter, you know, the, why that won't free you and these really artsy drawings. And then of course there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but you also talk in that chapter about the origins of quiet time. And you always hear about, okay, you have this mm -hmm. quiet time. And I never even thought that this is kind of actually a, a, a newer idea and maybe yeah. what we should be doing instead. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I I had never thought of it either until one day I just thought I have never seen anywhere in scripture where it says somebody took a quiet time, you know, and I wondered, 
you know, did they do that through history? Like, has that always been the term for it? And when I did a little research, I discovered that it was something that was first coined by InterVarsity Press back in the 40s and was really promoted by Billy Graham in the 50s. And that's where it took hold. But before the quiet time, there was something called the morning watch. And it was centered more on intercessory prayer and really focused on outward. So what are we doing in our communities? How am I interceding for my community? How am I living my faith outward? Well, the quiet time model actually flipped that on its head and turned Christian faith inward. And while we need both, I think that honestly, our current cultural climate is showing us just how much we need the Christian life to be outward, to be interceding for people, to be on our knees for our communities and involved in our communities. And it starts with that inner relationship with God, you know, that quiet time with God. But if our quiet time becomes innately selfish, it's about what I can get and how I feel and how God makes me a better person, then we're actually missing the entire point because the point was know God and let God change you. So then you go out and you change your world. I think that's interesting because I've noticed that theme in this book. It, it, the, the times when we get too internal and, and we focus on ourselves, that's where kind of things go off, off, off the, 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 the trail. And, and in your chapter talking about skirt length and Bible translations, overcoming legalism, when you were growing up and, and you talked about that you struggled with a lot of rules and, and mm-hmm. how that kind of hindered your faith. And so how do we kind of avoid that of of making these rules that God never came up with in the first place? Well, I'm going to sound a little repetitive here, but it really does go back to knowing what the Bible actually teaches. So what are the fundamentals of what God's teaching? And believe it or not, a lot of times God's law, both to Israel in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, um, is very big picture. He's not measuring the skirt length. He's not checking every single detail of the music type of deal. God is holy, and that's something that we don't compromise. But God's holiness as expressed through his expectations on humanity is usually in terms of these very broad principles regarding love, mercy, justice, um, obedience, and honor to him and to other humans. And so you can tell when something's becoming legalism because it's man's rules added onto God's commands. It's the shortcut to holiness. So instead of just letting the Holy Spirit work that in us and following the Lord into the holiness he wants, legalism adds on those rules, makes a list for us to follow so that we can essentially keep or earn our salvation. And we often fall into it very unconsciously because we feel like we're doing the right thing. We're pursuing holiness, right? But holiness is worked by God himself, not by our effort. Our effort is to know God and make him known. And then we're transformed in that process. Okay. So in the chapter, the courage to trust battling anxiety and overwhelm, uh, a lot of people now are, are anxious, maybe even people that aren't usually just because of the times that we're in. Mm -hmm. And so you talk, uh, you talk about that in this chapter, um, that overcoming it, you know, that's what Jesus promised his disciples. And it's not this simple pray about it or have enough faith, but what, what, how do we overcome anxiety when it comes to following Jesus? 
Well, I think we have to first reframe what we understand overcoming or victory to be. Um, when we talk about victory, I think people assume it means you'll never struggle with something again, but that's not true. If we look at victory in terms of where it's most commonly used in history, so war, in war, you can have one victory, but you're still fighting the war, right? You're still going to have to go to battle again and again and have future victories over the same enemy. So your one victory or your one failure in a battle doesn't dictate the outcome of the entire war. What matters is that you kept fighting. And so with anxiety, victory comes by knowing God, knowing who he is, his character, because that's what you trust the most. That's who you trust. And then being willing to get back up and fight again the next day or the next hour. So even in the moment when you're feeling anxious, preaching the truth of who God is back to yourself, God is faithful. He is kind. He is present. He is almighty. Those are the things you trust. And then through that trust, doesn't mean anxiety will go away forever. It may come back, you know, the next day you do the same thing. You fight it the same way. And that's victory. That's overcoming. It doesn't mean you'll never feel anxious again, but it does mean you know how to fight when it happens. So uh, there's a chapter talking about grappling with grief. Again, it's something very, very relevant to uh, what's going on uh, in the world today. And uh, you have all these great examples of, um, of, of people in the Bible that, that went through it and, and how they handled it. But just as a, like an overview Someone's grieving right now. How do I find God in what I'm going through? Mm, that's such a good question. So one of the things that I found to be the most comforting in grief, both for others and for myself, is rehearsing who God is. Who is God in the middle of my grief? Because if I rehearse my circumstances or I expected God to fix all the evil that I was ever going to encounter in my life, then I am definitely going to be disappointed because we live in a fallen world. But we can rehearse who God is back to ourselves and who God was in scripture to other humans who were grieving, other humans who were going through devastating times. And Christian grief, it doesn't require pretending that everything's okay. It doesn't mean we cease to feel or hurt or wonder if a void will ever be filled. It's the presence of God in our grief. It's all of God for all of our grieving and knowing that he himself was a man of sorrows. God has been grieved and he understands our pain. Let's talk about cultivating a lasting community. And I think this is, again, I keep saying this, but Felicia, I'm sure you believe this and understand this. Your book has been uh, is was meant to be published for a time such as this. And yeah, I yeah. mean, talk about a time where community is needed for two th reasons, because, man, we as a church need to come together and divide, you know, between the racial divides and all the other things that divide us and, and, and show that we can be that shining city on a hill. And then also uh, we're all uh, separate because of coronavirus. So here we are thinking, man, it's been a long time since we've had a chance to be part of a community. And you talk in your in your chapter about about that. A lot of things to help cultivate a lasting community. You talk about things that, you know, that you can that, that may stop that stop you like fear and things like that. But I, I thought it was kind of interesting. You talk about love and boundaries and you say that the grace we give sometimes requires laying down boundaries. Jesus called us to love, but love is not the absence of boundaries. And I think so often 
it feels like that's not the case. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? Cause I think, Oh man, if yeah. I really love somebody, I'm going to let them do whatever. And then maybe that means them they walk all over me. So how do we walk that line of having boundaries, but still show God's love? Yeah. It seems like, Oh, well, love means that I just let people do whatever they want to me. Or, you know, I, I'm not showing grace if I do set up a boundary, especially with somebody who maybe shows some toxic traits or, or such things. But the truth is that God himself has boundaries, not limits on his love. So we always show love regardless of the situation. But God has said, look, I love you. And the way to relationship with me is through Jesus Christ. You don't get to make up another way to approach me and have this relationship with me. This is my love to you. It's within this boundary. And in human relationships, we have to remember that, you know, it doesn't mean that we're just completely being walked all over or that we're allowing people who are extremely toxic or um, have struggles that would affect our families. And I'm not talking about like completely holding yourself up from community because obviously we also have to be in community. It's a, it's a balance. Um, but just using wisdom in when to set those boundaries and how to set those boundaries is a way of showing love to people sometimes and showing them, Hey, like when you are ready to be a mature in this relationship, then you can come closer. But you know, until that point, um, I'm going to love you by setting this boundary. So I'm sure that, again, your inspiration to writing this book, there's a lot of self-help books, especially for women, that talk about, you know, girl, you can do this. You've got this. And, <laughs> right, you know, they're, they're all going to punch fear in the face and then set it on fire. And then <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> and there, there's some good truth there. But um, you, you talk about towards the end of the book that true confidence cannot come from self, which I think, you know, I've read a lot of these books because I do a lot of interviews uh, with people about, about things like that, because it, it speaks to me as well. You know, so, so how do we find that confidence if we can't maybe kick fear in the face ourselves? Well, it's funny because in a lot of self-help books, Christian or otherwise, what's being taught is that, hey, you've got a problem with insecurity. Um, you've got a problem with fear or laziness or whatever it is. But within that self that insecure, fearful, struggling self is the answer to those problems, <laughs> which is a little absurd logically if you think about it, because if, why would you ask the person who's confused what to do about your future? You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so um, it's kind of a, a never ending cycle there, but it creates a, a marketing circle for the self-help world because they'll always have another book um, for the person who continues to be confused. Confidence and fearlessness have to come from something outside of ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to end up in that same cycle over and over again. And that's where for the Christian, that objective source of fearlessness and confidence is the love and faithfulness of God. That he supports us. He sustains us. He knows us. He loves us. And the more we know about him, the more we expose ourselves to him through the word, the more reason we have to trust. And so I am not confident because I have become flawless or I have a better body or because I achieved my goals. 
all of those things can be stripped from me, but I am confident because I know that I'm walking in the purpose of God. I know that God loves me. I know that he sustains me. So our confidence comes from something immovable and unchangeable and outside of ourselves. All right. One final question for you. And this is, I know I've heard this a bunch. I'm sure you heard this a bunch. And you thought, man, I got to throw this in talking about, you know, that you can make a difference. The great commission is our commission. And the very next line is, hey, St. Francis of Assisi said this, and we've all heard it. I just saw somebody post it, I think yesterday on Facebook, preach Christ. And if you must use words, but you say that's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of missing part of it. And not to knock on St. Francis, I'm sure he had great intentions. And what he meant probably was let your lifestyle, you know, reflect the gospel, but it does take more than that. We really do need to have the words, the ability to explain the God we follow, the ability to explain what we believe in this culture and how that changes our lives. Are we able to actually express, hey, I serve a God who loves you and he loves me. And that is what drives me in every single thing I do. It's why I'm in my community. It's why I make the moral choices that I do. If we can express that, I think it will change the culture because that's what the great commission is about. It said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That was a command to men and women, both we are to make disciples. You can't make disciples if you don't express who you're following who you are a disciple of. And as Christians own their faith, I think they'll become much more confident in expressing that faith to other people. And if you have a moment, could you share the story that, uh, of your own experience? Because I was right there with you on this. So often in my life, I'll be with somebody and I'll say, should, should I share? Should I share the gospel with them? Should I, should I share this? And I, I never really get to that point of actually doing that usually. So how about you share what happened to you in your life? Because I think a lot of people will relate to that. Yeah. So one of the most distinct moments for me in sharing the gospel um, was when I was in college, Christian college, um, working with our events team. And once a year, they would bring a bus down from Canada full of students and the bus driver was chartered. So he was not a Christian. He was just with the bus company and um, coming to this Christian university where he hung out for five days. And I would sit on the bus with him all day, shuttling these students while he was down there. And of course, you know, as this young 20 something at Christian university, I'm like, Oh man, I'm supposed to like share the gospel with him. Right. You know, but every time I felt like speaking up, I felt this nervousness, this pressure, and like it wasn't the right time. And so I waited. And so he came and went. And then we had another event. He came and went again. And I just never felt peace to say anything specifically. He knew I was a Christian. He knew it was a Christian university, but I did not feel the peace to actually express, you know, this is the gospel (laughs) to this bus driver. And the third time he came, it was the last ride of the day. We'd been in the bus for eight hours and he just opened up the conversation himself and just asked a direct question about something, something so plain and simple, like, you know, I wonder where we go after we die out of nowhere. And that was the moment I knew the Lord said, now is when I want you to speak. And so for those last, you know, those three full 
times that we were together, we were building this relationship. We were getting to know each other. I was learning his story, learning about his divorce, about his kids, about why he ended up being a bus driver. And so by the time I was able to share the gospel with him, not only was he open to it, but he felt like he could trust me. And I know there is a place for, you know, door-to-door evangelism or evangelizing on a beach or, you know, such things. But I think most of the time you'll find that people really came to know the Lord because of other Christians who followed the leading of God and built a relationship with them, who listened to them, who didn't ram it down their throats. And I didn't, he didn't make a salvation decision that day. I don't know what happened. He never ended up coming back to the university because we canceled that, that um, bus system for the event. And that was my last chance, my one chance to, to share that. And it was just a really neat opportunity to share the love of God with somebody who was actually asking to hear it. If you kind of feel like you're spinning your wheels, if you're afraid of what the next step looks like of actually maybe fulfilling what God wants you to do in your life, Well, next week is going to be just for you. We'll be talking with Banning Liebscher. He is the pastor and founder of Jesus Culture and his new book called The Three Mile Walk, The Courage You Need to Live the Life God Wants for You.